0: Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone.
1: Steve, Paul, welcome back. Good to be here as always. Yes, and we've got a real winner today <laughs> in this film. We'll be,
0: uh, we'll be ta- uh, discussing back to school, pertinent to many of the people listening to this who are indeed going back to school. And uh, uh, I, uh, I, I have to throw out, this is not my favorite film. I, uh, I'm not a huge fan, although in the, in the pre-chat, I I've, I've, to understand that both of you adore this film.
2: I don't, I don't adore it. I like it. But it's, uh, you know, it's 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 an okay comedy. My description of it is, you know, Al Chervik goes to Faber College. It, you know, combines some stuff from from the sort of late 70s, early other early 80s, you know, sort of slob comedies. I mean, it's Rodney being Rodney and that's good. Uh, I don't think it's a classic by any means, but I think there's a lot for us to talk about.
0: That's true. Yeah, there's there's some good economics we can talk about. Paul, what did you think?
1: Uh, you know, I I really like it. I'm a huge Rodney Dangerfield fan, and that colors my perception of the whole film. And from the opening sequence of Fielding Mellon and I evidently went to the same elementary school. Looks just like PS 208 in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I,
0: I, I'm I not a huge – I got nothing against uh, Rodney Dangerfield, but I'm I'm not a big Dangerfield fan my, myself. I, and I think a lot of it's subjective. Like you can um, – I, I am a stand-up comedian, and I can see in, in – uh, over the course of, of you know thirty or forty years, you can see people that are more towards the vaudeville end of things. And yep. while while Dangerfield is not a vaudevillian, um, he's very much a one-liner, uh, yep. and, and his humor is very much in the one-liner. And, and I'm I, I think by the time you get to to my generation, that that sort of um, brand of humor had kind of died out so it didn't have quite the same emotional potency as I did. But yeah. for those of you that are uh, listening to this that were born in the 80s and the 90s you can assume that for educational and economic purposes where we're discussing human capital that we could be talking about Billy Madison or Van Wilder. Uh, but we won't be. We'll be discussing Back to School.
2: Well, just one point on that, Andrew. I think Rodney, you know, Rodney's in some ways the last of the Borscht Belt guys. You know, I mean um, that style, like you say, that sort of vaudevillian type style he really was one of the last ones i think
0: yeah i think you're absolutely right about that and uh, uh... dare
1: i say that you guys are not showing respect <laughs> 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 that, that wasn't a shot i, I mean I, I actually am a rodney fan and
2: well, i do think andrew's right there there is something generational about it um uh, and, and again I, I think i think that i was you know that wasn't <laughs> lack of respect for rodney and by the way one other thing i learned as you know as i was watching this is that rodney made a special he was a great um, uh... A sort of cultivator of young comedians as we know from his hbo series and everything and uh, casting Sam Kinison in the role of the history teacher was Rodney's insistence that that be a young and fairly unknown person. And, and the story is that Jim Carrey was also up for that role, and and he picked Sam Kinison over over Jim Carrey. And Rodney really was good at spotting young talent, and I think that's something that uh, I'm not sure how much. I mean, Andrew, you would know better than us how, how how much of that really still goes on among the older stand-ups today. But but Rodney was that was one of Rodney's really great gifts.
1: Well, I do know that he started, And let us not forget that Rodney Dangerfield is the man who said, I was so ugly that when I was born, the doctor slapped my mother. Yes. <laughs> he, he was
0: a master of one-liners. I, I will give him that. Uh, absolutely. Well, he, was, yeah. he
1: was also so, so ugly they had to tie
2: a pork chop around his neck to get the dog to play with him, right? Not a,
0: uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, but but you, oh, so. okay. Very good Enough at one-liners. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step away from that. We're going to slowly meander towards the economics of this film because I I, I want to talk a little bit more about the culture in it. I, uh, I I will say I had a little bit of a problem with the plot in that I, I think normally when you've got a good comedy, uh, the main character is suffering pretty much the entire time, uh, and uh, and comes through the experience and then has their their big epiphanal moment where they learn not to be a jerk or that life is better than or life is more than what they thought their inner goal was or something like that. And uh, for most of the film, it's just Rodney Dangerfield being very popular and awesome. And uh, and then about three quarters of the way through, uh, he kind of hits a hiccup. After he's already seduced the woman he's in love with, and uh, <laughs> uh, manages to uh, uh, take this test and then beat the test, uh, there's you know usually there's that moment where you know oh things seem to be going well and then oh no all is lost unless I risk everything and then the the, the protagonist risks everything and wins everything on top of the things that he didn't even know he wanted and <laughs> he doesn't really go through that he's just really cool and awesome and everybody likes him and then he beats everybody so it, it's it's a much more static plot line.
1: Well, there's a model for it, and it's called Falstaff. I'm the Shakespeare oh. scholar here, and there's a great deal that's Falstaffian about this uh, comedy. It's a different kind of comedy, but it's a guy who breaks all the rules, is anarchic, who represents the spirit of fun, and gets in some trouble, uh, but we we learn not to take so seriously the things that the uh, killjoys of the world want us to take seriously. Uh, and, and you know you, you can't go wrong. He he bags Cal- Sally Kellerman. I mean that's you know it's, you can't.
0: <laughs> oh, and, and and we also have frontal nudity within the first sixteen minutes yes, of the, uh, the film. Yes, I, yes. I actually because we've we've uh, because we've already watched a couple of nineteen eighties films and I've, I've realized that they just try and shoehorn in as much nudity as they can. I actually kept track. Sixteen minutes thirty four seconds into the film, <laughs> we do have. Completely unnecessary, gratuitous nudity. No, utterly English.
2: gratuitous.
0: Uh, and, and, and even like from from the Rondi Dangerfield character, who's who's oh, this is a building. I bet my son lives in it. I mean, it's such a random leap of logic that he <laughs> and just, just that
2: I he's... The moment he sees the building, you know where it's going to, and you yeah. don't care because yeah. it's okay. Yeah,
0: and he just—I know—I'll go to the bathroom. It's yeah, it was it was. I'll, I'll give I'll give some some props there. And uh, Paul, I will give you major props for dropping Falstaff on us. This is uh, <laughs> uh, a, a nexus point of, of Shakespeare, culture, comedy, and economics. So well well done, uh, all of us. Uh, so I think you know one of the one of the big themes that that comes through in this film is education and human capital. And, uh, the, the value of education. It's one of the things that, uh, Rodney Dagerfield's father espouses to him. And then, uh, and then, uh, or I should say, uh, 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 Mellon espouses to his son, um, throughout the film. And so, uh, education and human capital. What is the relationship between the two?
1: Go ahead. Well, Okay, the film's uh, a bit ambivalent about yeah, that, because yeah. it suggests that the uh, from for economic purposes, the true education is business experience. And uh, Fielding Mellon is better uh, for not having gone to school where he would have just learned some abstract, irrelevant principles, some equations from some uh, stuffy professor. And he's actually succeeded because he's learned in the school of hard knocks. What is interesting, the film celebrates humanistic education. It really denigrates this business school education, but it suggests that the one thing that Rodney's missing is higher culture, and he learns from poetry, he learns from Dylan Thomas, uh, that he has to stick it out and not take off from anybody. Uh, so it suggests that the humanistic component, I hate to say it, studying of English, the subject mm-hmm. I teach, that that builds character. Uh, but on the issue of learning economics, that seems you do it better in the real world. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think I think Paul's right. And
2: what's what's really interesting is even at the, that very opening scene where we see Rodney as a young boy, his father's the, the line is something like, you know, you, you'll never be a whole person or you'll never be a good person. Right. Without yeah. without the education. He doesn't say you won't be a success. He doesn't say you won't, you know, be materially comfortable. He just won't be, you won't be complete. You won't be, you know, well rounded. And I think that goes to Paul's point, which is, you know, Rodney's character doesn't have to go back to school to make more money. He's, a, you know, he's a whatever billionaire. But but what he does get is that is the is the liberal education. He gets the humanistic part, uh, and and that's where where he really does where he really does learn something. And so I think it is, um, it's very much a sort of view of education. In that sense, that's, that, that is focusing on education as, as kind of as, – as, as enculturating, right, in the way that Paul was just saying. Um, it's, hard, it, it's a little hard. I mean we normally think and many people think about education in terms of, of again, human capital and building up our skills and experience. And that's our human capital that makes us productive and garners – gets us higher wages. And there's no doubt that, that education has a role there, though the economics literature is, you know has a great deal of d- d- debate about that. Uh, but it's also the case that education has these other values that for us uh, as well.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, I, I think you're... It,
0: oh, go ahead, Paul. Go ahead.
1: Sorry. Well, it's interesting in light of contemporary debates on education. Right now, everybody's trying to push college education yep. for economic reasons, and they're trying to make it more and more vocational and make colleges answer to the needs of businessmen, which I think is a huge mistake. Uh, in a curious way, this film is a defense, uh, uh, Steve says, of liberal arts education. Obviously, one reason I love it is that moment when, when uh, Rodney... T- tosses all that money to the students and says uh, it's on me, Shakespeare for everyone. Uh, <laughs> he, he can appreciate the value of that uh, perhaps because he has missed out on it uh, and uh, you know, it's moments when he's studying William Butler Yeats' poetry uh, that something really happens and of course that's all associated with the Sally Kellerman character as opposed to this stuffy business school professor.
0: I, I think you're exactly right and this, this actually is something that I enjoyed about the film was that it was ambiguous in regards to what, what the essence of education is. And I don't think that in America we've ever really made up our minds as to what the purpose of university is. I mean, <laughs> h- historically, um, you know, like, like our university system came out of England, out of Oxford, and out of Cambridge, and then, and then it kind of came over here. And back then it was a seminary. It was purely for for humanistic, or I shouldn't say humanistic. It was, it was purely for... Um, the edification of your soul and you as an intellectual and, and you as a person, the betterment of you as a human. And as um, a citizen. Yeah. And, and as a citizen. And then later on, we we, uh, we take on a vocational element to it, and the guilds kind of enter and, and merge with it. Um, I, I know that in, uh, in, in secondary and, and primary schooling in the United States, it had a lot more to do with, with making citizens and uh, actually being... Uh, available soldiers because we we modeled our our uh, primary education off of the the, the Prussian model, uh, and so we, we haven't really figured out whether it's a vocational or whether it's a uh, uh, it's it's a edifying uh, system. Uh, my personal opinion is that you should probably do some of both. Uh, my my undergraduates were in, in two different majors. I was a, a religious studies major and a history major. Uh, and my, my dad, when I told him that, said, oh, that's great because they opened up that history factory down the road. <laughs> you right, that's uh, right. <laughs> you'll, you'll do really, really well. Um, and and I, I I think if I could go back to, to past Andrew, I would have said pick one of those two because both of them were great in terms of uh, learning paradigms and, and learning uh, how to think and, and intellectual frameworks, but also take up carpentry or, or maybe <laughs> computer programming. If I was going to do two things, one of them should have been vocational
2: well and i think we you're you're right and and i think there's a couple things i'd add to that we we still you know we we think of education as this career higher education as this career path and and a couple things about that one um the evidence seems to suggest that that students who what what matters for students in the job market later on are just the things you were talking about—the critical thinking skills and the writing and speaking and all those kinds of things—and that that choice of major, while there's certainly salary differences, um, uh, you know, isn't isn't as important as, a, as acquiring as acquiring those skills. And we see with with Rodney's character, a guy who, by all outward measures, except perhaps his second marriage, <laughs> you know, has been very successful, uh, and and yet he, you know, and that's, and he didn't need college for that. Yet, what he did need it for? Again, these things we we were just talking about before. So, certainly, to the degree that, as Paul said, we're pushing kids into college because everyone thinks that's the way you get a job. I don't think it's true, and and you can make a lot more money these days doing things you don't need a college education for uh, than than oftentimes some of the things that that people are. So, this movie kind of touches on that that
0: ambiguity. Well, and we we might add that from from another perspective, as you, as you point out, Ronnie Dangerfield has been successful, but not necessarily edified. Um, yeah. And uh, and and you can go get a, a vocational job, which will pay more than a liberal arts job. But but we should add that that you don't necessarily have to go through the university system to be educated. I realize that both of the people in the podcast are <laughs> deeply enmeshed in the university system, and I'm not knocking it. Uh, but what I mean is that I, I have met many people that have uh, been autodidactic uh, on their own and become quite educated outside of it. So it's it's one of multiple routes that that can uh, bleed bleed to a, a greater understanding of the world around you.
1: Well that phrase multiple roots is very important, and I'm going to make a free market point about education here. Uh, I think it's exactly been what's best about the American educational system is no one has decided what it should be. We've had a relatively free market in education in this country in this sense that we've had many private institutions that have been able to go their own way and explore and experiment with different notions of education. The saddest thing that's happening now is the attempt to homogenize higher education in this country. It's a result of the federal government becoming more and more involved in it and the idea that we have to impose a single model on all higher education when in fact the answer is that people should go to different colleges for different reasons. We had that system, and we still largely have it. I hope we can preserve it.
0: Yeah, yep. <laughs> I, I agree with you entirely. I, I, I don't think that it will come as a surprise that the three of us would, would generally find federal meddling in the university system as uh, an unwanted intrusion. Uh, and I'll, I'll add to it on the vocational level, I think that um, I, 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 for one, uh, have a lot of friends, uh, and I'm sure you have a lot of students that have student loans. Uh, now, in my case, I, I went to a state school. I could have gone to one of those fancy boat shoes schools. Not for
1: me, they don't. <laughs> uh, I, have,
0: I have a kid with student loans. Right, a, lo- a lot of people have student loans. It's a very, very vogue thing to do right now, and, and an accompanying vogue opinion is the concept of student forgive, or uh, I'm sorry, debt forgiveness. Um, and, uh, it, it implies to usually to people that have the debt that sort of a wand is waved and that, uh, then they go free. And that seems very nice because it seems unfair to bridle people with debts. Uh, and, and what they oftentimes forget is that it, it, it's not really forgiven. It's just transferred to some other body. Uh, if, if there's an organization which holds your loan, um, it either goes bankrupt or more likely it's passed on to the taxpayers and, uh, I'll throw out. I am not in any favor of of paying that because I I could have gone to a very expensive school. I didn't. I went to a state school. Uh, I went and got a, a master's degree on a scholarship. And I I'm I'm not in favor of bailing everybody out. But I think where where we can help people, and I and I do feel very uh, sorry for the number of students that are really saddled with student loans. Is I think if you basically treated uh, student loans like investments, as opposed to federal subsidies. Um, that you'd, you'd see a big difference, and but what I mean by that is, right now under current law, uh, you you can declare bankruptcy if you have a failing business. Uh, you can declare bankruptcy if if you know you're you can't pay your mortgage and all these different things. You can't declare bankruptcy in terms of student loans. You're stuck with them forever. Um, and so what I would do if I were running the program is I would have private loan companies. You'd approach them and say, you know, I really want to get a degree in engineering. And they'd go, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And, uh, they'd, they'd loan you the money for it. And if you said, I want to get a degree in, uh, uh English. In, 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 in English, <laughs> they'd say, you know, um, we're, we're going to do that, but we're going to give it to you at a really high interest rate. Or conversely, we've already hit all the people that are going to get English for it. Um, and then if you messed up, you could declare bankruptcy like any other business. But I, I think if you saw this, you'd see a lot of people, right, let me phrase this, you, you'd see a, a market which would not have a glut of liberal arts majors like myself currently floundering in the recession, and you'd see a lot more engineers and a lot more uh, healthcare care providers
2: there are certainly i don't i mean loan forgiveness is a bad idea and that I, that there's strengths to your your plan i just think again as someone who spent his life teaching at a liberal arts college i think one of the things to be careful here is to not assume once again that the major means you're that much less likely to have a job out the other end. There's some pretty good, stu- you know, empirical studies that show unemployment rates, unemployment rates, not salaries, unemployment rates among different majors are not that much different. If you're investing money in the kid who's going to be an English major or gender studies major or whatever, the major itself, the, again, their salaries might be lower. But, but if they have the skills and they can write and think and do all those kind of things, they're going to, they're going to be employed and be able to pay within reason, of course, those loans back. I mean, the real problem here is, as you said, Andrew, we keep subsidizing this stuff. And as students get more loans, colleges can afford to charge higher tuition. And, and we get the the sort of arms race for the fancy dorms and and the, and the, and the, you know, athletic facilities and all these kind of things. And that begins, and then the loans pile up, et cetera, et cetera. So there, I mean, there's a lot of systematic problems here. I'm not totally convinced that the choice of majors liberal arts or versus engineering whatever is the is the key thing that we want to focus on
0: Okay. Well, fair enough. I, I suppose my main my main thing was that um, I, I think students should be able to declare bankruptcy yes. in, in regards that's to their loans. A, yeah, um, that's a different question. Yeah, and and that and that loans should be more private as opposed to Pell Grant oriented, yep. where it's just a blank slate. Um, that I, I think that you'd see more market corrections. I don't necessarily. Yes. I mean, like I, I am a liberal arts major, and you're exactly right uh, in that. I mean, my I, I work in in television, and I work in comedy. Neither of which I anticipated a history or a world religions degree going into, um, and neither of them have seemed to help me back. So yeah, to, to, to you liberal arts majors shaking in your boots, uh, you, you, you can turn out okay. And in fact, I thought it was kind of funny during the film. Uh, I think it's to the first fifteen minutes or so. Robert Downer Don, Johnny Jr. is talking with uh, Rodney Dangerfield's son, and he says. Um, or I'm sorry. It's Dangerfield's son that says, "Even if I do graduate, what then? The job market is such a mess, or is is so bad?" And I thought, "Oh, it's happened before. Uh, this is this is not the first time in American history that
1: graduates have entered a bad job market." Yep. Yes, it was the uh, the 19 early 1980s recession. That's what they're referring to.
0: Uh, yep. Well, a couple of other things that I, I thought worth mentioning. Um, you know, there, there are different types of capital. Um, you, you can have uh, capital in liquid assets. Uh, you can have um, – I, I suppose you could say uh, – and, and you, you, the, the economist here can correct me. If I had a factory that would qualify as some kind of capital, that would be an asset. Yep. Uh, yep. But uh, people oftentimes forget that, that there is there is mental uh, capital. There There is educational capital. And if you were to, say, wipe America clean uh, or, or any developed nation clean of all of its assets, well, that would be terrible – if uh, everybody's brains were intact, they would still be better off uh, than than if not. Uh, by, by which I mean, um, intellectual capital is, is, in my opinion, the best form of capital, the most potent form of capital for a country. That's ultimately what uh, what creates jobs, what creates devices and things like that. And so, uh, it's it's a a very heady and an important part of, of the collective wealth of mankind. Yep,
2: and again, and, yeah, we I mean all that. That knowledge, experience, skills that we call human capital. Absolutely. And, and by the way, that's one reason why more population is good. <laughs> more population means more people, more skills, more different skills, more new ideas, more production, more wealth. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, we, we augment our human capital when we have kids and we,
1: we educate them and, and, uh, and they become productive citizens. But well, what- it's, of course, a mistake to think that that, e- that mental capital comes only out of the university system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, In fact, as this film shows, uh, the real capital relevant to economics comes much more from business experience. Yep, Uh, that's one of the things I love about the film.
0: Well, on that note, Paul, I'd like for you to, if you can, uh, draw a distinction for us between economics and business, Uh, because in in the film, Rodney Dangerfield is not an economist. Uh, The the economist is the incredibly stolid, stodgy British man. He's the economist. Well, they call Uh, Dangerfield is a businessman.
2: They call him an economist, but he's really a business professor. He's not even. They call the course economics, but what they're teaching is business. I'm going to let Paul answer that question in just a second, but I just got to make one point here that that this confusion you're pointing to is a constant one in Hollywood scripts and TV scripts. And I want to point to two one film and one TV show that got it right because they deserve praise for it. Ferris Bueller, God love him, got it right. <laughs> That's because okay. they had or, he was. They got it right. Uh, and Family Ties, if you remember Family Ties, Michael Alex Keaton, Michael J. Fox's character, was an economics major. And they actually got it very right then. And they, there's even one episode where he's talking about elasticity of demand and stuff. But those are the exceptions. People make this confusion all the time. But Paul can tackle the other ones.
1: Yeah. Uh, the interesting sequence is that one where Rodney goes to the business school class, uh, being taught by this stuffy uh, English professor. Uh, English in the sense of his national origin or his accent. Uh, 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 but uh, there we see the way in which uh, this form of academic economics abstracts from the real world and Rodney is rooted in the real world. It starts off with this professor saying we're going to create a, a product and so we're going to go through the process and we're going to build this factory and Rodney is a businessman asks, what's the product? Uh, and the professor says, oh, tape recorders. And, and Rodney says, uh, excuse me, the Japs will beat us with the labor costs. <laughs> he immediately sizes up the reality of the situation. So the professor then says we'll produce widgets. And that's the move to abstraction will produce something no one's ever heard of. It's got this phony name, Widgets. And Rodney understands what's wrong with that. And the professor starts offering a model. He draws diagrams on the board. He produces mathematics. And Rodney comes up, excuse me, I'm going to quote him here, uh, with, first of all, you're going to have to grease the local politicians for the sudden zoning problem problems that always come up. Then there's the kickback to the carpenters, and if you plan on using any cement in this building, I'm sure the Teamsters would like to have a little chat with you, and that'll cost you. Oh, and don't forget a little something called, uh, for the building inspectors, then there's a the long-term cost such as waste disposal. I don't know if you're familiar who runs that business, but I assure you it's not the Boy Scouts. And the <laughs> professor says that will be quite enough, Mr. Mellon. Maybe bribes, kickbacks, and mafia payoffs, as he says, are how you do business, but they are not part of any legitimate business world. And that really is any abstract academic model of the business world. The film is, this is a terrific point uh, that these professors think that the economic world can be represented on a blackboard. And Rodney having been out in the real business world, excuse me, Fielding Mellon, uh, uh, knows what's actually involved in constructing uh, a, a, a factory and running a business. Uh, um, I subscribe to the Austrian School of Economics and one thing that distinguishes it is that it doesn't believe in abstract modeling and just number crunching. It tries to take the businessman's own view of the world uh, and above all the fact that there's uncertainty, there's messiness, there are all these things that academics uh, tend to neglect and that businessmen uh, intuitively understand.
0: And on, yeah, and on that and, note, I think uh, he, he follows up later on by saying, The reason guys like you got a place to teach is because yeah. guys like me donate the buildings. Yeah,
2: that's yes, it. The line is, It's guys like me that are the reason that guys like you have a building to teach in, which is the absolute best line in the movie right there.
1: Well, there are some better lines, but we can't quote them on radio or whatever <laughs> the stadium is. <laughs> best, yeah, the best
0: non-typical Rodney line in the movie. How about that? Um, Let's see. Well, uh, a couple of questions that I I have to follow up on this. Um, You know, we we all went to university. You all teach in university. Uh, I have a master's degree, so I'm I'm in favor of education. Uh, However, uh, one one of the things that that didn't come up in the movie, perhaps because um, our our understanding of of the rich back then was still kind of rooted in old money, you know, the, the, uh, the British guy. Um, we they don't we don't really see any of the uh the zuckerbergs or the uh the Steve Jobs or the Bill Gates, uh, to my knowledge all of whom dropped out of college uh, in this film um, His son talks about dropping out of college but is but is uh, dissuaded from doing so and in dangerfield likewise considers dropping out of college uh Why do you think people people sometimes do that and uh for any listeners it, it, w- would you recommend it
1: well i think entrepreneurs have a hard time putting up with the conventionality of the teaching in academics uh... they quickly understand that they're dealing with people who are presenting abstract models. Uh, and there's something about the entrepreneurial spirit that makes people want to go out on their own. Uh, uh, Ed Land, the guy who founded Polaroid, was an early example of that. Harvard, I recently met Peter Thiel, uh, the uh, founder of PayPal, who's now offering $100,000 to people uh, to drop out of college. And they made fun of that in this new uh, HBO show, Silicon Valley. Uh but, uh people can sit around a classroom and listen to people uh, lecturing on how to do things. These are people who want to go out and do it themselves, so often they are better off getting out on their own and getting some real experience
2: yep and, and I think that's exactly right and, and uh, more power to them I, I, Again, I think there's just too much belief that college should be for everyone and and certainly one of the things I've tried to do over my career is to recognize students who just shouldn't be in college and say, you know what, you're going to be happier and more successful doing something else. You might decide to come back, and that's great, but you're know, you wasting your time and money here. And especially when arguably all the people you named, Andrew Zuckerberg, et cetera, I mean these people have made our lives immensely better off by not staying at school and by going out and creating and doing the things that they did. True, and that's ultimately what matters
0: and we, we will throw in a caveat for those listening if you are a liberal arts major this probably doesn't apply to you this is more of the <laughs> the the entrepreneurs of, of which i am not one uh it's it's my well, job to be professionally clever so i need other people to pay me to do so but if you're the sort of person that's going to figure out how to pay people like me then by all means drop out you
1: know, you know i've made this, this point before i think on one of these broadcasts but academics by nature and by and large are risk averse mm-hmm. they're people who since kindergarten have sat in class uh, uh, calmly and quietly and done what they've been told and they've been given a clear reward system, do this and you get promoted, do this and you get into college and so on. And that's the way they view the world. That's not the way entrepreneurs view the world. And so the whole thing about entrepreneurs is they are people who actually get this wild rush out of taking risks. Uh, and that's what makes it hard for them to function in the academic world and why the academic world doesn't understand them. You have risk-averse people trying to describe the activities of people who actually live for risk.
2: And it also explains what what Mises called the anti-capitalistic mentality among academics and intellectuals, which is that, I mean, I think there's two elements to it. That sort of Mises half of it, I think, is this, which is that they, they have made, they have existed largely outside of the constraints of the market, Through their risk averseness, through a job system, there's no – the academic labor market looks like nothing most of the rest of the world experiences from the way you get a job to tenure and these sorts of things. So so that's a whole different experience than the rest of the world is used to. It's also the case that academics make their living using – sort of articulate rationality and the ability to explain and, and, and do things based on sort of, you know, articulation of ideas and so on. When much of what happens in the business world is often entrepreneurs with contextual and tacit knowledge who go by hunches, who go by experience and can't always explain why it is they do what they do. Uh, and that sort of world in which, which, uh, it's not about how well you can write up the report, but whether your judgment about what it is that people want and, and who's the best supplier of your inputs, uh, is often much more inchoate than than that, and and I think that those two things together make it very hard for many intellectuals and academics to understand and certainly appreciate how how the marketplace operates.
1: That, that's and of course, that's, and academics uh, can't face the fact that the world rewards risk taking.
0: Yeah, uh, that's well. It, yeah, a it's based with, on seniority, right? You you yeah, well, you, you, and, you put in and your and time, you get tenure, and then you're you're protected forever
2: and it it's i mean the academia at least nominally is a meritocracy i mean you you know you you are supposed to advance based on merit and we and markets it's often again you know, being the right place at the right time, there's elements of luck in what entrepreneurs do. Markets don't reward you for being good. They reward you for creating value. And that's, that's a very different kind of yeah. system than most academics are used to. And the self-selection process, as Paul said earlier, of
1: academia, selects for people who they, they want no part of that. They want the meritocracy thing. Uh, there's that great sequence at the beginning of the field when you see, when we see Fielding Mellon as a functioning businessman, where just instinctively at this point, he knows to take into account depreciation, yep. unit cost, says take it off as a capital gain. I mean, yep. he didn't learn that all in business school. He right. learned that in the school of hard knocks. Yep. Uh, and he probably couldn't explain it. Probably couldn't explain depreciation, but he knows, uh, it's to your advantage on your taxes.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, stepping stepping back a moment because I, I'm I'm fascinated to hear the inside baseball from you two and I I, I had not really considered the the risk averse uh, element of academics until Paula pointed it out a couple of episodes ago and the, the Mises quote about um, uh, anti capitalist mentality of of intellectuals uh, coming from this sort of uh, I guess talker versus doer mentality is, is likewise fascinating. Thank you, Steve. i I'm curious. Are there any Economic fallacies that you see repeated from your peers—that is—is fairly endemic to academia.
2: The the, the zero sum fallacy is the key, yeah. right? I mean, the belief that economic activity is someone's gain means someone else loses, uh, and and the related sort of unintended consequences idea, right? The, the idea that somehow if the rich are getting richer, it must be that everyone else is getting poorer and not seeing, you know, what's derisively called trickle down, but rather is the story of the rise of the West, that, that the savings and capital accumulation of, of some people make possible the higher wages of the rest of us. I mean, that whole way of seeing economic activity as zero sum is a huge fallacy, I think, that that academics are prone to.
0: Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm with you. That was probably one of the biggest revelations I've had in the last five Years, which to its credit, I, I did get in my master's degree uh, when I was doing uh, international uh, political economy, was was the idea of relative growth versus actual growth. Uh, which, which for those listening, is is uh, whether whether you're growing the pie or you're you're slicing the pie more evenly. And uh, it might be that um, I'm I'm getting ten dollars and Paul's getting a hundred dollars, uh, but that's preferable than me getting five dollars and and Paul getting seven dollars. Uh, it's better to have, for all of us to have more, even if there's some disparity, as opposed to all of us be equally miserable, which, which is a concept foreign to me uh, until I was in my late 20s, and I, I think is actually beyond many, many, many people within the populace.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, with regard to what Steve said, part of the problem is that a great deal of academics is a zero-sum game. Yeah. Uh, is one guy gets tenure and one guy doesn't. Uh, one woman becomes a dean and another woman doesn't. Uh, it's so much more political. Actually, it's funny. One of my colleagues put it very well. He said, in the business world, it's doggy dog. In the academic world, it's just the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> But has, you have a very competitive world in academics, but it's competitive for prizes. Uh, it's not like you can split the difference uh, the way businesses often do in uh, partialing out jobs and salaries and compensating for one reward with another. So academics do see the world in very much black and white, uh, zero-sum uh, terms. Also, the consuming emotion of academics is envy. Uh, he's just, he's just <laughs> I, I was completely all sentence for him when he started <laughs> I mean you know and and so I, I I would say by and large, academics are as envious as any group of people are and by the way don 't get me wrong, some of my best friends are academics <laughs> uh, but uh, and as a result, they view the whole world through the lens of envy, and they 're extremely envious. they are in many, many cases smarter. Uh, in some sense, than people out there in the business world, they cannot live with the thought that those people are making more money. Uh, that's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Academics are very competitive over their salaries, but it's laughable to anyone with business experience to see how small their salaries are by comparison yeah. with those in the business yeah. world. So, so if, pick, if I were to, to pick p- up on one of Paul's points, real quick, go, go for that, it. that yeah. worship of intellectual
2: activity and brains and smartness and cleverness and all those kind of things is I think that's exactly part of the mystery of why they why academics uh, Are, are, you know, are so, find so objectionable the kind of money that a guy like Dangerfield's character makes, who's this sort of slobby, stupid, crude, you know, not stupid, but kind of crude and uncultured guy. And yet he makes all this money when their whole, the the, the value system of academics is that, that what's meritorious is the smarts and and, and all this. And, and I think that's, that's often, you know, at at the core. And it also goes back to something we've talked about in an earlier episode, which is why the real envy of the 1% is the 5%. Yeah, it's intellectuals, you know. It's the intellectuals and and the folks who are in that five to t- top five to ten percent who can't figure out why they're not in the top one
0: percent because they're really really smart. And all
2: these guys <laughs> in the top one, they're not as smart. How'd they get to, you know? How'd they get all
0: that money? Well, so I want to I want to back up a little bit because I am genuinely having epiphanies right now as I listen to all of you. Not not the ones that I'd anticipated having, but but nonetheless I'm, I'm thrilled about. Um, something that i've I've wondered about in the past is you know wh- why do universities tend to be overwhelmingly liberal? Uh, and my my presumption had been that it was because uh, there's lots of young people in them, and, as the saying goes, if you're uh, conservative when you're young, you're heartless, if you're liberal when you're old, you're brainless. and that it was something to that that uh, that effect that was causing it. But what you all are indicating is that the sort of people that become academics are are risk averse um, and prize. Um, intelligence and um, articulate goodness over creating uh, wealth and creating good, and that this is going to uh, foster an, an environment which um, does view a zero-sum game as the way the world works and, uh, and is also slightly suspicious of people that are risk-takers and entrepreneurs. Am I, am I reading that correctly?
1: Yes, yeah, so here's another point that I think the film makes in an indirect way and I'll look the scene when Danger Fe- Fielding Mellon starts organizing his homework. Uh, he's got this work to do, so he gets all these people in to do it. He brings in his secretary to take notes from his class, uh, for him in class. He's got to write a paper on Kurt Vonnegut. He hires Kurt Vonnegut to write it. Which is now, a great in certain,
0: cameo. <laughs> yeah. In a certain
1: sense, that's brilliant. As he puts it, a good executive knows how to delegate authority. Now, what he is doing, and I will say this as an academic, is horrible from an academic <laughs> yeah. point of view. It's in fact plagiarism. Yeah. But it shows you this curiously anti-capitalistic um, uh, academic world is profoundly individualistic and keeps saying it's only uh, your work if you've done it yourself and everything is a competition and uh, you've got to do it yourself. And Rodney shows the the more cooperative spirit of the market world. Now, again, I don't recommend it as a right. system in academics. I hate <laughs> plagiarism. But, but it's kind of funny when you think about what's wrong with what he does, especially if he, he produces good results. We should only care about the results if he's smart enough to organize a system to produce these papers and to take notes on it. So who cares if he didn't do it all himself? But there is this academic competitive spirit. It's instilled in you from the first grade on, uh, that you got to do all this stuff yourself. Uh, it's really kind of funny. It's really deeply and, antagonistic as opposed to. the Cooper was a young man market. who was
2: one of my students, right? And did that. That's the kind of kid I'd look at and say, you know what, young man? Yeah. Get out of college. Go be an entrepreneur. You have a gift. You shouldn't be here. Don't. And, you know, two different value systems. And if you, you yeah. know. You, you, you have it really it like- illustrates the two systems.
1: Yeah. yeah. no, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, 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 the Keith Gordon character, Rod, uh, Mellon's son, says at one point, uh, 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 angry, he says, I get my astronomy homework done by NASA. I think that's what <laughs> <the> <laughs> in the film. And you know what this mean, does? What's this- wrong with that?
0: <laughs> no, that, 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 the, does- the, the results element is something that, that's always kind of uh, irritated me. I, I remember I, I had a discussion with multiple professors because they wanted. Um, uh, it, as as is the normal standard with most term papers, was on. A, it, it has to be a minimum length, um, and I'm, I'm a fairly verbose, articulate guy. So it's not like I have a difficult time adding fluff if I need to. But but I would point out that this. I I, I my my argument was I can't think of a single real life scenario where I will be rewarded for taking more words to describe something than are necessary. Like, if if I can communicate to you the answer to the question and I can do it in the most economic usage of words possible, haven't I saved everybody time and and therefore done a good thing? But no, no, I needed to make sure that it got up to X threshold. And and, uh, I I suppose to indicate I was doing sufficient work, but it never really made a lot of sense to me.
1: Here's another one of uh, Fielding Mellon's great moments. 10% Ten percent bonus for every grade over B, and an A plus gets you a free trip to Hawaii. Off yeah. season. <laughs> there's, there's a guy uh, who I knows more- You know that that's the way the business world is organized, and it has its own logic. You know, you
2: watch these movies about college, and I, you know I've been lo- teaching long enough. I've been an administrator, and and it's like you you wonder you, you can't get them right. You can't t- portray them exactly right because. It, it doesn't work dramatically. But, you know, I just watch movies about most universities and just start laughing at how the screenwriters think that's how – if that's the how they think universities work. I mean the obvious one here is is—is the whole bit with, with, with Mellon's character, you know, donating the money for the business building as if you could snap your fingers and make that happen within a day. I mean Paul knows as well as I do that even if someone had the money, it would take years to get through the process of actually approving it and everything else. And the way they handle the plagiarism and the oral exam, I mean none of that, you know. Yeah, yeah, you you,
0: you have to be a Kennedy for that to work, but for most of us, yeah, that, that even, doesn't that
2: doesn't work. Even that. I mean, it's but but okay, I mean, I you know I can suspend that disbelief a little bit. The the econ versus business thing drives me crazier than that anyway.
1: Well, you know, uh, let's face it, uh, film's supposed to be entertaining and interesting. Yep. There's yep. pretty much nothing more boring to watch yep. than academic life oh,
0: no, <laughs> no, That's where the Let's turn the nudity. 16 minutes, the, 30 seconds in. <laughs> one of
2: the things I found when i was in administration was that almost every administrator that i dealt with whether they were academic side or like student affairs people adored animal house they just adored it and they could quote the lines and they thought the portrayal of of, of dean wormer and all the you know was 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 his, they didn't take it ser- so seriously that they couldn't make fun of it, right? And, and I found that – that was a striking thing I found when I went into administration. Uh, that still may be the most realistic portrayal of college ever.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so what? one more question before we, we move on because I'm kind of curious. We're uh, – as, as Paul mentioned early on in this podcast, there's never really been a, a monopoly on the form of universities. And it would appear that they are diversifying even more, uh, federal intrusion notwithstanding. By which I mean, um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I was doing a, a very boring rote job right out of college. And so I downloaded, uh, um, via podcasts, straight lectures from, I think it was Stanford and MIT. And I, I listened over the course of a... a Half a year to an entire eighteen-hour semester worth of courses, which I could do for free um, as a uh, as as somebody not enrolled in Stanford. And there's other uh, educational outfits like Khan Academy, and now, now there's Phoenix. Uh, do you think that there could be more of a, a meritocratic element that'll be injected, or, or I should say, more of a competitive element um, from a a, a a consumer perspective that will enter education as it becomes more integrated with the internet and with podcasts and with uh, with with uh, Uh, extra university settings?
2: Yep. Yep. And and places like mine, small liberal arts colleges, ironically, given our conversation, are going to have to become very entrepreneurial uh, and are going to have to make a much better case for our value added right what what is it that we do that you can't get from doing exactly the things you're talking about andrew uh what what is the value added of of in a, being in a classroom with a faculty member and twenty five kids and and having that experience, especially when so much of the content is available in other forms and I think it's a I, I think that you can overcome that challenge, but I do think we're going to see much more of this kind of fragmentation and competitiveness that you're talking about
1: Paul, do you have any thoughts yeah Well, you know, I'm myself involved in this process. A bunch of my Shakespeare lectures are being put up on a website almost even as we speak, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But... I will say it's, again, a case of being wary of this one-size-fits-all business. Uh, some subjects, uh, like language acquisition and mathematics, I think, can be taught online. I'll again make the distinction that the film makes between humanistic education uh, and uh, the hard sciences. I mean, in the humanities, I think uh, there's a great deal to be said for the direct personal contact. I mean... Would you rather be taught by a computer or Sally Kellerman? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to me, as a teacher, there is a very strong personal component in teaching uh, that uh, is very difficult to convey uh, except in a a personal uh, situation. So. Uh, i I think we're going to see uh a, a differentiation in what things end up being taught online and what yeah. things still need to be taught uh, uh in a real classroom yeah, gonna- i I
2: think, I think that's right and and great teachers are great coaches and i i don 't think you can you can you know coaching requires that kind of for lack of a better word intimacy that you get from being in the classroom, from meeting with students outside the classroom, from reading and, 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 and commenting on working on student writing and speaking I and mean, all the kind of labor intensive stuff has a real value a uh, you know, value added that you can't get out of Khan Academy or these other kinds of things. I think I think they're useful and helpful and complementary. They're just not substitutes for that for the contact between a faculty member, a good faculty member. I, I think
0: you're right. That's a very good way of putting it. They're 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 supplementary and very helpful in a supplementary regard. But like, I I had several mentor figures uh in, in college. My my political science professor had been a senator and a, and a governor. My world religious professors uh, or world religions professors were all ministers or or anthropologists, so I'm very much in agreement with you there. Well, I I think we're going to cut it off uh, at this point, unless either of you have any finishing comments you'd like to add?
2: I, I would just add that the way Sally Kellerman starts her class by by having the re, having that little uh, poetry reading before she even says a word about anything else they're going to do in that class, and she says something like, "I hope that kind of whets your appetite." That's exactly the pedagogically correct way to start class. And when I teach intro econ, I do exactly that, but I do it with the famous i pencil essay. So you know that that uh, that strategy that she and it captures Rodney's character and that 's what it 's supposed to do and and I was glad that was
0: a good portrayal of, of college life well then uh, then I, I think we'll uh, and Paul, do you have anything you want to add
1: well, I will say on the, uh, the it 's very difficult to portray college life in films it 's usually done very badly. I think Goodwill hunting is one of the films that does it rather well, and again because it like this film does do a pretty good job of capturing uh, the kinds of characters you find among professors and their competitiveness, sometimes their pettiness, but sometimes their real quality as teachers. And let's put in a word for Sam Kinison in the film, it's an insp- Professor Turgeson is an inspiration to us all. <laughs> well,
0: and uh, you both have been an inspiration to me and to any listeners who are c- contemplating going to university, many I I highly encourage you to study hard and do well in order to study with Paul Cantor or Steve Horowitz uh, long enough for them to tell you to drop out and become an entrepreneur. There you go. All right. Thank thank you very much, gentlemen, and until next time. Thank you, sir. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com/slash econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.